Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I keep hot things hot and cold things cold. Yet I am exactly the same invention. I consist of a glass vessel within another vessel. What am I? Well, you know exactly what I am because you clicked on a link that this is a podcast about the history of the thermos flask. Hello and welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you for your company. Now, depending on your age, you may remember your first thermos flask differently. For me, it was that kind of classic, iconic tartan print thermos flask, I guess from the late 1970s or 1980s, had the detachable mug lid on the top, which always got lost. Which, if there's anyone out there who hasn't lost their lid to their thermos flask, please let me know, because you are an enigma. I tell you what, I remember um, one of the great television science episodes about this, James Burke, who I mentioned frequently on this podcast, who did his series Connections. There's a really, really good episode. I forget which number it is, but it's called Eat, Drink and Be Merry. And the final piece of that groundbreaking bit of television is him talking about the invention of the thermos flask and how the invention of the thermos flask then went on to be absolutely fundamental to trapping gases. And actually trapping gases means you can do things like build rockets. And if you can do things like build rockets, it means you can do things like bombing other countries as well as going to the moon. And there's a very, very famous bit of television where James Burke is talking about the invention of rocketry. And he says at the end, and there's two gases in particular that are very important, hydrogen and oxygen. And if you release them and put a light to them, you get this. And he turns and points and we pull focus to a launch pad in the distance. And just as he points, the rocket takes off. It's actually Voyager 2, 1977. But it's one of the great bits of television, the most perfect bit of television uh, piece to camera timing ever. And it's um, talked a lot about online. Anyway, it's worth having a little look at that. And actually worth looking at the whole piece because it's kind of about what we're talking about today about the invention of the thermos flask or the Dewar flask. Now this is a very different episode of Patented because uh, I'm not going to be sitting at my desk in my house which is what I normally do. I'm actually joined in a studio by my dear friend Andreas Seller uh, who I've known for many many years. He is one of the kings uh, not only being a brilliant chemist but one of the kings of science communication and he has brought bags and bags of props for me to look at which is very exciting it felt almost like I was back in the science lab at school. We've got protective goggles, we've got liquid nitrogen, we've got everything. And in many ways, this episode is, well, it's half history, half chemistry lesson. So next time you go on a picnic and pack your thermos flask, you don't get the tartan ones anymore. They're all very fancy and kind of industrial looking. Anyway, you'll know exactly why your tea is still hot after nine hours or why your liquid nitrogen is still cold after nine hours and how and why the humble thermos flask was invented in the first place. Enjoy the episode. I think everyone in from about 1970 to 1985 had the same flask. It's a kind of brownish, reddish, tartan thermos flask, and everyone loses the lid on top. You've got the inner lid and you've got the outer lid. In fact, 
I've got one. Have you? Yeah, bro. <laughs> that one. I, I, well, I didn't bring that exact one. Uh, I brought <coughs> this one. See, that's too. Oh, crikey! Look yeah. at that. It's got it's got yeah, things I've in got, it. I've got the goodies. Liquid right. nitrogen. He's just pulled so, out a black, a black thing. A black yeah, flask. and it's it's actually thermos. <laughs> and it's actually thermos. Well, we'll get on to as that. available from from supermarkets everywhere. It kind of yeah. is the one we all used to have in the. Except oh. that's the kind of super duper one. Everyone had the tartan flask. The other thing was when you went on your picnic, you'd pick up your tartan flask and shake it and realize that the glass had broken inside. One of the key things is that glass itself has quite a low thermal conductivity. And so the stuff inside won't gain too much heat by conduction along the glass from the top. Oh, I see. And stainless okay. steel also has a remarkably low thermal conductivity. So you can make thermos flasks, but in structure, they're exactly the same. Could you, in theory, make like a perfect vacuum whereby your coffee or tea would stay warm for like a billion years? Uh, maybe not a billion years, but certainly weeks. Okay, so these flasks, right, are absolutely everywhere. Shall I just pull one out? Yeah. Okay, you need a pair of safety glasses. Oh, crikey. But I've brought one. This is why I like having Andrea on the show because okay. there's always so kit. Here is <laughs> a 20 liter glass thermos flask. Oh my God, for me, look at it that. Is one of the most beautiful things you can ever have. It, it looks like a massive ordnance shell. It is. But mirrored. Just explain to us how a thermos flask works. The thermos flask itself yeah. is essentially two beakers. It's essentially a double glazed object. Okay. Right? So what you have is an inner flask and an outer flask. Mm. And the key thing, and this was what, what Dewar recognized, is that there's a gap in between them. Oh, look at that. So yeah, it's it essentially a little bottle which sits inside an outer bottle. Yeah. The two are sealed together. And one of the key things to notice is, you see there's a little side arm, there's like a dimple. And if you look at the big thermos flask, there is a dimple up at the top. And that yeah. is crucial because that's where when you make them, you suck the air out and then you use a blowtorch, right, to seal it off. Right. And so that captures the vacuum. And the performance of the dewer is crucially dependent on how many molecules you have inside. Why? Wait, molecules of air in between the in two? In between. Got it. So if you have nothing, right, then the air inside, it touches the cold side. Yeah. And therefore it contracts. And so it starts pouring downwards. And on the other side, it, it's warmer, and so it yeah. goes up. Yeah. And so you start setting up a huge convection current. Okay. The other thing is that any hot molecules that touch the cold inside, right, mm. they dump their energy inside. So you've got conduction, you have convection, and then there is also radiation, which is being transmitted, in other words, infrared mm -hmm. from the outside to the inside. And it was Dewar who realized that what you had to do was to remove everything between the walls. And so he made these double glazed flasks. Can I just ask, you've explained it beautifully. Is there an engineering issue in terms of how well you can make them? Because presumably getting all of the air out and creating a very, very good vacuum, it would just collapse. No, that, that, that isn't the issue. And the glass is strong enough to take it. But the reason you've got your safety glasses on is because were this flask to smash, right? Glass would be thrown. 
it'll implode and it will throw glass. Okay, here is one which is actually placed and it's actually in a kind of steel protective container and it's got sort of a little bit of rubber to, and so that makes it more robust. You know, you're not gonna knock it and smash it and break it. Okay. But this is the thing that will be used if you want to make some, if you want to keep something hot or if you want to keep something cold. Let's talk about a name you mentioned, um, James Dewar. First of all, take us, take us back in time to the origins of this. Why was this necessary? So first of all, I mean, James Dewar was Scottish. He was born, I think, in a place called Kincardine. He was quite an odd fellow, which is you know, something that caused him problems throughout his life. Like what, he, had, what kind of all? Well, he was very, very jealous of his own kind of intellectual abilities. He, um, he, he was, had a very quick temper. And if people sort of contradicted him, he, you know, get into big ding-dongs. And there's a whole series of public ding-dongs over science that are recorded and known where he claimed that he was the first to do something and somebody else was saying, well, uh, actually, there was... I understand and, that. You know, what was his science? Like, what was his, where would you put him? Was he a physicist or a chemist? Or? So, well, you know, one of the things is I hate to draw those, those hard line distinctions because, you know, he was interested in very low temperatures. That was the thing that kind of gradually hooked him. He started out, I mean, one of the things is there's, there's a legend about James Dewar. He was a phenomenal experimentalist. He was great with his hands. He built really cunning devices with assistance. Um, but he attributed the fact that he was so skillful with his with his fingers to the fact that as a small child, he'd fallen through the ice in a pond and and he had almost frozen to death. And this led him to spending two years recovering in bed. And for whatever reason, he started making miniature violins, <laughs> right? And so he made these, it's completely mad. So, so he made these, these hey, miniature violins. you're in bed violins. for two years. There's no internet. And, and, you know, he was clearly, you know, very good in school and so on. He then started doing science in Edinburgh with a man called Peter Tate. And Peter Tate was a, an incredible polymath, mm. mathematician who invented, for example, quaternions, which are this what sort are of, well, they're a, a four-dimensional representation of the world. It's a way of, of thinking in four dimensions. Mm. And so in a sense, he's a precursor to an awful lot of mathematical tools that have become routine for quantum mechanics and, and all that kind okay. of stuff. But, but Tate was also interested in vacuum, in temperatures, in heat capacity. And so Dewar started working on these kinds of problems with Tate. And there is a rumor and I can't find the original source. But with Tate, he came up with what he called a vacuum goblet sometime in 1864 or something. In other words, a precursor to what would become the Dewar flask. What, do we know where that came from or do you have an inkling? It's, it's not clear. It's not clear where it came from and I can't find the reference. Now, I will say That'd that I've heard of this thing through the Royal Institution, which is where James Dewar ended up. Yeah. And if the Royal Institution speaks, I think we should listen. We should. Can, can I just ask, like, why were they interested in cold temperatures? Like what was, because I, I hear in the history of science, this, you know, race for absolute zero. Was so, it just an intellectual curiosity? I mean, or was there a practical reason? Yes, there is a, a fundamental curiosity. You know, in a way you start in the 17th century, when people begin to realize that there's something called air. Yeah. 
right? And that air actually has weight. So Torricelli and the, the famous mercury barometer experiment. And then you have Robert Boyle and in France, Mariotte, who come up with the, the relationship between pressure and volume. Mm. And so the idea that you can make measurements on gases, that gases are a thing, mm. that there are liquids, that there are solids, mm-hmm. really they beca- begin to become quantitative. And at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, a Frenchman by the name of Charles, who was really big on hot air balloons, right? Yeah, they were they were very popular. Well, one of the things is he starts measuring very, very carefully what happens to a gas if you warm it or you cool it. And what he finds is that the volume of the gas changes by about one three hundredth of its volume mm. for every degree that you cool it. And so if you think about it, one, one 300, wait, if you go back in a straight line, well, absolute zero mm-hmm. is somewhere around minus 270. Right. We live in a world at 20, 30 degrees. Okay. Yeah. So, and so suddenly there emerges this idea of the absolute zero, right? Mm-hmm. People start saying, well, could one attain that? Mm. And at the same time, there are people curious about, for example, mercury. Mercury is a liquid. But no one's ever seen it solid. Is it permanently a liquid? Mm. And, 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 and so people go to Siberia with thermometers, and they're hoping to see this stuff freeze, right? Slowly people realize you can get lower and lower temperatures. Mm. And some of the gases that people are now starting to make, because now they, you know, nitrogen is discovered, oxygen is discovered, chlorine is discovered, and people want to know their properties. Mm-hmm. And there is a class of gases which become known as the permanent gases because you can't seem to cool them and compress them in any way hmm. to make them liquid. And so now the chase is on. Is it possible to make these permanent gases, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, can you actually liquefy them? Why would they want to liquefy them? Were there practical reasons at the time where they okay, oxygen, that would be handy most in of it, form? Most of it is curiosity-driven, right? right? It's it not industry just, or anything. There's no real industry that is there. Although these ideas about compressing a gas and making it liquid mm. and then taking that liquid and expanding it... Mm. Those ideas become really important Mm -hmm. with people like Thomas Hampson, who was working in London around the time that Euro was, and Carl Linde in Germany, because what they start to make are refrigerators. And of course, refrigerators, Mm -hmm. hey, that's heat pump technology. Mm -hmm. So all of this basic stuff about can you compress, can you liquefy, can you evaporate, can you expand, all of that ends up having huge implications for the bigger world. But for the moment, in some ways, this quest, can we reach absolute zero? Can we make liquid oxygen? Can we make liquid nitrogen? Can we liquefy air? I would say is purely curiosity driven. Mm. And what about, I mean, what came first, the liquid or the flask? Because presumably if you're going to make a liquid, you've got to quick put it in something Dewar et al. designed a flask in preparation for that moment where they would... So, so Dewar, Dewar had already used evacuated sort of instruments which had evacuated jackets when he had been measuring, for example, heat capacities very carefully. Mm-hmm. He wanted to understand mm-hmm. how much energy it takes to warm something. Mm-hmm. And so he'd started using that. But it's really when 
a, a Swiss scientist and a French scientist. So um, there's uh, Pitet and Caite almost simultaneously, a couple of hundred miles apart, one in Geneva, one in, in, in France, report being able to liquefy air and to obtain liquid oxygen, right? How do they do it? I mean, how, so, so this is done uh, by quite a complicated process. They needed to pre-cool air. And to do that, they used another gas-liquid combination. So they used sulfur dioxide. You compress that, it becomes liquid. When you release the pressure, it cools enormously. Mm. Now, if you're wondering about this, you can recreate this process now. You go and buy yourself one of those little canisters, the refill canisters for cigarette lighters. And if you press on the, the thing at the top, yeah. the stuff that comes out is unbelievably cold. It's about minus 40, minus 50 degrees. You can measure it if you like, want. Like butane. Yeah, those butane, butane things. things yeah. And so expanding, you know, evaporating a liquid and yeah. expanding it results in huge cooling. Mm. And so what they did was they pre-cooled using uh, SO2, and then they compressed the oxygen and expanded it again. Mm -hmm. So, so it's kind of a two-stage process, mm -hmm. and they obtain droplets of this pale blue liquid, right? When they report this, everyone goes mad. The, the, the permanent gases are not permanent. And what was the blue liquid? That was oxygen. And the blue liquid is liquid oxygen. Liquid oxygen, wow. And liquid oxygen. I mean, people knew that it was magnetic, but suddenly they had this magnetic liquid. Wow. There's all kinds of science yeah. that suddenly explodes out of that. Dewar hears about this, and he's on to it. He's at the Royal Institution. He thinks, this is going to be my program. My program is going to be to liquefy the impossible, <laughs> and that is hydrogen, and then to get down to absolute zero. Let's just very briefly explain the Royal Institution. This is the kind of the lay science organization. It's like the Royal Society, but for people like me. I mean, yes. I mean, one of the things about the 19th century, which is interesting, is, is how big the idea of educating people mm. and of taking workers and educating them to empower them to improve themselves. Mm. There's this big sense, I mean, it also comes from Sidney Smith, I guess, about self-improvement. Maybe mm. that's a little later. But So all across London and in the big industrial cities, there start being these institutes mm. which are dedicated to educating people, showing them the latest science, the latest technology, and so on. And the Royal Institution is one that was actually founded close to the end of the 18th century, and which then kind of develops. It has two strands. One is it has active scientists working within it, doing cutting-edge work. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, it has this, this phenomenal kind of public facing side, mm. when now we'd call it public engagement, but people like Humphrey Davy, who discovered the alkali metals, who had experimented on himself yeah. with all kinds of gases, <laughs> he started giving these public lectures. Then Michael Faraday perfected these, brought in the Christmas lectures, Friday evening discourses. Yeah. And Andreas Seller, I believe, is 
probably. I mean, I've spoken there. The I've spoken there once or twice. Once or, um, <laughs> once or twice. No, I've really not done. done. They've now, even it, let me speak at the RI, which I, is I, I know. Well, you know, I mean, look, the, the fact that we've been there, I mean, it's, the standards have <laughs> slipped a long way. My favorite um, RI fact is the, the, I don't know if it's true, actually, the Albemarle Street, which is yes. in Mayfair, was the first one-way street in Britain because. No. Is that It's not, not true. Damn it. It's not true. Oh, it's an urban myth. It's oh, interesting. No. I thought so, too. Okay. But it was already a one-way street because it was quite narrow. But yes, these these lectures were so popular that there would be rows of carriages lined up. And you know, it just just a reminder: number one, that traffic congestion was being there for a very long time, and secondly, that you know what, you are the congestion, right? <laughs> you know, and so you go to the thing yeah. in a carriage. Um, you know, you will. But th but things like the batteries were yes. first demonstrated at the Royal Institution. All kinds of. You know, the, the wonders of electricity yeah. I mean, were first all demonstrated. Kinds to... Of amazing phenomena were 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 shown off yeah. there and published. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience. From the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry, may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze-up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So, so Dewar was based there. So Dewar became the professor at the right. Royal Institution, okay. and and therefore he was he had uh, some grants, and the grants were provided, for example, by Johnson Matthey, by the Goldsmiths Company, and so on. He didn't have, you know, there, there wasn't in the same way that kind of state funding or whatever that that maybe we we think about today. Yeah. That, in a yeah. sense, would come later, and that, of course, is his big Achilles heel, was that he actually worked. On, on, on a bit of a shoestring. But he built himself his own oxygen liquefier. He was very reluctant to share how he did it with other people. Because he's a bit crazy. Because, you know, it was his thing. And he wants to do hydrogen. He had he's some very able assistants, particularly a man called Lennox. And Lennox, you know, was, was almost killed various times. I mean, a couple of his assistants did die. Uh -huh. And, you know, these were at the limit of the possible. I mean, you know, you were using compressors to compress these gases really high. You were expanding them. 
Um, and the, the big issue that he had was how do I store this stuff? Yes. I've gone to all this trouble to make myself 20 cubic centimeters of, of liquid oxygen. How am I going to keep it? And that led him to the idea of making this double-walled container, which he announced. <laughs> he should have just bought a thermos flask. Well, he should have <laughs> bought a thermos flask. He announced this, this device, right, yeah. in a uh, – I mean, one of his discourses at the Royal Institution, he then did it for the British Science Association and so on. And I think it was in 1893, around there. But, I mean, it was – pretty revolutionary. And he realized that the quality of the vacuum that you have in the gap between the inside and the outside was absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. Now, vacuum pumps in those days were not brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. So they were mostly mercury pumps. One of the ways that he and, and, and actually, he was, you know, remember these, these things, you know, we often go, oh, the great inventor suddenly. No, no, no. With, with Peter Tate before in Edinburgh, he had actually given a lot of thought to how do you make an ultimate vacuum? How can you get as close to a perfect vacuum as possible? Mm -hmm. And so one of the systems that he used, and I've always kind of loved this detail, was to put some mercury at the bottom of the flask, right? And then through the little side connection, right, he would attach that to a pump that would get rid of a lot of the air. Mm -hmm. Then he would heat the mercury, mm -hmm. until it boiled, mm -hmm. right? And when it boiled, he said it would create a wind of mercury, and that would blow all the other air out. Now you could seal it off, and then the mercury, of course, now it doesn't, it, it has, there's virtually no vapor, yeah. and you have the best possible. So, so that was one way. Mm -hmm. He then came up with an improved one, which was actually um, to combine liquid air with charcoal, and so he would have a pump and then have this charcoal absorber that would hugely improve the, 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 the vacuum in the container. Mm -hmm. And then you use the glass blown torch mm -hmm. to seal it off. The thing is that there were no, there, there weren't electrical pumps yet. You know, nowadays we take the idea of pumping things. Yeah. You plug it in, you pump up your tire, you do whatever. No, no, no. That, that didn't exist. And so it was incredibly laborious. And how, how good was, was Dewar Flask 1.0 then? Do you, I mean, in terms of... I suspect it was good, but not great. And yeah. he comments on the fact that, you know, if you really pay attention to it, you can improve it a lot more. Mm -hmm. One of the advantages of his mercury method was that actually you ended up with a mercury mirror on the inside. I was going to ask, it, why, is there a reason why the glass is silver? Silver, yeah. yes. So that's to ensure that the, that the infrared is reflected away from the core okay. of the inside. And so if you have hot soup in your thermos flask, right, yeah. then the infrared that would otherwise will be reflected back in. And if, on the other hand, as I have here, some liquid nitrogen, then it, the, the, the heat from the outside will be reflected away. Okay, so we have liquefied gases, gases that we didn't think we could liquefy yep. now can be liquefied. We've got a, a container that can hold the gases for a, yep. a certain length of time. What did that do to the world? Why was it revolutionary? Well, I mean, initially, you know, it's kind of a science thing. And the science issue is that suddenly low temperature science becomes possible. And for Dewar, um, you know, the fact that he wasn't well-funded, mm -hmm. also that he 
pissed off so many people. He had he had no students. He had some assistants. Mm. He was a loner in many ways, and he, was and he wasn't very well funded. Mm. And what happens is that in um, in Holland, a brilliant physicist called Kamerling Onnes, Heike Kamerling Onnes, is able to do the next step, which is actually to liquefy helium. So he gets down to a temperature of 4.2 Kelvin. Mm. And when he does that, he doesn't just liquefy helium, but he has extended the measurements. Now, it's worth remembering that, you know, as he cooled things, he would measure the electrical resistance of metals. He made all these physical measurements. There's all this amazing science that goes alongside that he's doing. And he's publishing all the time. But what Heike Kamalionis is able to do is he starts measuring resistance and he suddenly finds that mercury loses all resistance. He's stumbled across this phenomenon of superconductivity. Which, which is right? vital for the modern world. Which is vital for the modern world, but which suddenly opens, you know, kind of opens yeah. up all these mysterious quantum large-scale properties. Is, that's really interesting. Actually, the, the interesting thing, I, I was re-watching James Burke's Connections, the, where he was sort of talking about the invention of the flask, mm. and he makes that really wonderful na- analogy. Well, as the flask... The Dewar flask, now it's been invented, of course, it keeps your insulin from going bad. It's very handy on the Ed- Edwardian picnics. But it's in the flask behind me, and he's standing in front of the Saturn V rocket, yeah. which is basically yeah. just a yeah. thermos flask. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the two gases you need are hydrogen and yeah. oxygen. And when you put them together and put a light to it, you get this. And then, of course, and, you get I mean, it is just, you get it's the, just a devastating devastating moment of television. Well, it's a great right. moment of television, but it's such a defining moment in the history yeah. of, 20, of 20th yeah. century everything because, of course, it's the birth of rocketry, it's it's weapons, it's, it's high technology, it's everything. I, I might just throw in, just because I'm from UCL, right? <laughs> I, I should just throw in one additional side thing. So while Dewar has made his thing, he, he liquefies hydrogen, he presents it, he's got his flask, um, a young man called Thomas Hampson, we know very little about him, devises a quite compact machine which allows him to make large amounts of liquid air, right? Mm-hmm. And he makes it at a site very close to the Houses of Parliament, so down in Pimlico. Um, and he starts sort of selling this stuff. William Ramsey, who was a, a, a scientist at UCL who was very interested in the properties of gases, suddenly discovers argon, right, the, this, this noble gas. And he finds argon. He then finds the next gas, which is helium. Mm. And, and he writes in his diaries, you know, the, the, these two gases, they, they clearly fit in a new place in the periodic table. The, the, these, these place in the periodic table, the whole world to find them in. Where am I going to find them? And... He finds them in the liquid air that Thomas Hampson brings him in his effectively picnic flask, right, mm. up to UCL. Mm-hmm. He comes, you know, brings up a liter or two. They are using, of course, these Dewar flasks, mm-hmm. right? And they are able then to isolate neon, xenon, krypton. They, they develop. So they hadn't been discovered. They hadn't been discovered ah, yet, right? So these things are, are almost contemporary. with So, yeah. so there's this incredible enabling t- technology that A, allows you to find elements. B, starts to allow you to find these, um, th- these weird quantum properties and so on. Mm. 
And of course, once you have superconductivity, you can start making magnets. So you can make superconducting magnets. And within chemistry, for example, in our basement, we have dewers, in fact, double dewers, which are taller than I am, right? And, and, and kind of, as, as, you know, two meters across. And, and these are superconducting magnets. So at the core is a Dewar flask containing liquid helium, and in there are all the coils which generate the magnetic field. And that sits in a bath of liquid nitrogen, right, itself inside a second Dewar. So it's like kind of Dewar dolls, yeah. right? Russian yeah. dolls, one yeah. inside the other. Yeah. That enables us to do all kinds of, 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 of kind of chemical characterization, but that's MRIs of those superconducting sort of coils. That's what you go into. Because um, that tees me up nicely for my noble gas joke. Argon walks into a bar and um, the barman says, sorry, mate, we don't serve noble gases here. Argon doesn't react. <laughs> a classic. <laughs> Every it's year. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> sorry. Every year, sorry. Well, I mean, Argon, Ar Ar Argon does react. <laughs> sorry. Argon does react. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. He the the helium, only then. one, the helium. only one that, I mean, helium, helium, yeah, is, is pretty hard nut to crack. Neon as well. Okay. We've we've had a few goes at seeing whether we could get, get neon to react. It it, okay, you mentioned. You but, but we're off topic. <laughs> Let's you, come back to the flux. You, men you mentioned MRI, which we wouldn't have without Yeah. Sure. Before we kind of get into sort of picnic flasks and how that happened, I'm just trying to paint a picture of how revolutionary, what would the world be like without being able to liquefy gases? Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, you just wouldn't have refrigeration. I mean, you know, the, the thing is that if you, if you haven't figured out that when you compress a gas, right, it warms up. Yeah. And when you expand it again, it cools down. Right. If you do that in two separate locations, you can dump the heat in one place and then absorb it in the other, and you the, have air conditioning. But not even the science; just the actual flask itself. If you didn't have that ability, oh. if no, one, I mean, there would be no rockets. There'd be no med modern medicine. There'd be no computers, presumably. There'd I mean, be no low temperature physics would not exist, and therefore, you know, there would be so much technology that is based on on semiconductors, which is based on, on optical electronic stuff mm. that wouldn't have been discovered because you just didn't have the time. You know, you might be able to cool something down, but it would ice up on the outside. Yeah. It, would, it would frost up. You know, the remarkable thing is I've got something at minus 200. Can, we, can we open your flask? Of course we can. But, uh, you know, we'll pour a little bit, and what we'll do is we'll pour it into, into one of the my little Jew. ancient Dewar flask. the so ancient Dewar. It better not break. So the liquid but nitrogen is going it, and in. And the beauty is that you can see into it in this case. It's fizzing. So this one is not is not silvered. No. Right? But it's great so we can see it so. But, you know, it makes all these nice noises, right? That's why I brought it, right? I mean, you know, yeah. if, you're, if you're doing podcast or radio, you know, you have to bring stuff that makes noise. noise. So it's clearly steel, yeah. right? You can hear that. But there it is, and you can see that it kind of settles down. Can I hold it? It's not got the best vacuum because it's still bubbling, right? So there's still energy getting through. Look at that. See, when you, when you, you know, that's what chemistry looks like, isn't it? You've got bubbling things you know, you and, some fancy, bubbles, you and know, some bubbles. Fancy we all love right? bubbles. Just remind us of the temperature of liquid nitrogen. So it's at minus 196 degrees. So it's 77 Kelvin, right? And it's kind of nerdy to remember that but it's just one of those 
fixed temperature points. That, yeah. And, you know, liquid nitrogen, we use it everywhere. We use hundreds of liters. It's just a nice little objet, isn't it? You'd have that. It's a just, gorgeous thing. Can we just quickly end by the word thermos? Where does that come from? Okay, so and the word thermos. Uh, the word thermos actually comes from a German glassblower, a man called Reinhold Burger, yes. who um, in, I think, 1905 or 1906, filed a patent in Berlin. He was a bur glassblower in Berlin. He had no connection with Dewar. Mm. Dewar got all of his flasks made in Ponder's End in North London, in, mm -hmm. in Enfield, mm -hmm. right next to the Edison and Swan factory. Oh, interesting. Where, the of course, bulbs. they had of all course. the light bulbs. Yeah. It's, it's all connected, right? So um, Berger has no connection at all with, with Dewar. But Dewar had never, because he was the gentleman scientist, he never patented anything. And so he, you know, this thing was available. And, and Berger came up with this design, which is very essentially unchanged today, hmm. which is the idea of having outer inner flask and then a protective shell mm -hmm. around the outside. And, and the it. drawings he patented in Germany, patented in Austria, he patented across Europe, patented in the US, and he called it thermos. So Berger made all the money and poor Dewar and got so Berger, well, he, Dewar gets the credit, I suppose. But Dewar hey, gets the credit. He gets the name. Cares. Come on. He gets the name. That, that naming rights are pretty important. Who put the tartan on it? Who, who said, I know this? You know, is I think that's interesting. I, it, it had never occurred to me that there was the connection between the Scotsman and maybe, the Tartan. Me the neither. Is, but, maybe but, that, but maybe I just said that flippantly, but it could but be. To go back to, to, to the, there is an interesting connection between the picnic flasks, right? And yeah. Dewar himself. Because in 1911, a woman called Agnes Bertha Marshall. Uh, wrote a book called The Book of... Well, she wrote some articles in cooking magazines, and she was an expert. She had a little shop in Mortimer Street mm -hmm. in North London, um, which was well, central London. I think yeah, it's WC1, so, uh, I think. Mortimer Street. Mortimer yeah, Street, um, WC1. Anyway, Bloomsbury. Whatever. Yeah, Bloomsbury, um, where she ran cooking classes, and she taught people to make jellies, ice cream, sorbets, uh, those kinds of things. And she wrote a book, which was very well known, called The Book of Ices. Well, in 1911, she wrote an article about how to make ice cream at home. And she talks about the possibility of, you know, if you could get your hands on some liquid air, then each guest at your dinner or you could go out on a picnic with your little container and they could make their personalized liquid, she called it liquid oxygen mm -hmm. ice cream. She must have seen one of James Dewar's mm -hmm. demonstrations. And right? now look what happens. Hipsters the world over. Now and hipsters the world over now use you know, are using liquid nitrogen to make ice cream oh. when all you really need <laughs> is something else. But that's another story. Andrea, it's been an absolute pleasure. Partly I wanted to do it here because I knew you'd bring stuff. Yeah, love, if you want stuff. someone to do show and tell, right? Exactly. You know, that's I'm, what we I'm, need. I, I got toys. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It's, it's good to it's good Thank to you. see you. It's Thank good you. to see you. There we go. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that little uh, ramble with Andrea Seller and myself. He's brilliant, Andrea. He's the best of the best. Anyway, don't forget to tell your friends and family about uh, the podcast, and don't forget to tell the next person who serves you tea or coffee in the thermos flask. You can tell them all about it. If you've got a suggestion for a topic, as ever, get in touch. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is too niche. Crikey, we do everything from the invention of the thermos flask to the invention of Victorian ectoplasm. We are nothing if not broad in our taste. Thank you very much for your company. 
and I look forward to seeing you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.